you should try organic. What about becoming vegan? Don't eat any carbs. How about low carb? Paleo, keto, don't eat anything white. Don't forget about the dirty dozen. You eat too little. You eat too much. Don't forget to fast before you work out. I do intermittent fasting. Don't eat after six o'clock. Oh my God, sugar? Every day, I'm inundated with opinions. And you know what they say about opinions. Please, don't be foodish. Join me, Amy Goldsmith, owner of Kinder Nutrition and Wellness and Dietitian for 20 years, as I talk evidence-based nutrition to get the disorder out of eating. I can't wait to serve you. Welcome back, everybody. This is Amy from Don't Be Foodish, and I am here with my co-host, Kim Coppola. Hey, everyone. And we are excited to introduce our guest, Paula M. Kramer. She is an international best-selling author, a speaker, a TV producer, and teacher. Hi, Paula. Hi. I'm happy to be here. We are so glad to have you. So I know we talked before this podcast and I got familiar with your story and it's very, very remarkable. Um, We really talked about how you have triumphed over so many tragedies through your lifetime. I did. Yeah. (laughs) And I think as eating disorder experts, we really wanted to bring your story um, to the forefront here just because it spotlights resiliency and I think hope for people. Um, And we also know that tragedies can be a precursor to eating disorders. Um, So we think your story could provide help for those who are suffering. Can you explain to us how um, maybe your eating disorder developed due to your strategy, your tragedy and what that looked like? My mother tried to kill me twice when I was very young and I was born in 1951, and so I grew up in an era when mothers couldn't possibly kill their children. So what could I say about it? Plus, she tried to kill me when I was a baby. I have memories. I have memories from both times. I have a very vivid memory from the second time. But I was a baby, so babies' brains have no words. It was a picture in my mind that kept coming to me at times, I didn't pay attention to when it came. I wish I now had, but I didn't know what it meant when it was coming to me. But I had to grow up with a mother who tried to kill me twice. Mm-hmm. So I broke the experience of being murdered into separate physical, mental, and emotional pieces so to keep them separate because I didn't know how to cope with putting them together. I started compulsively overeating when I was 14. I went to a friend's house where they invited me to have dinner. And then I went home and it was dinner time. My mother expected me to eat dinner. So I ate dinner and that started it. I would just stuff my feelings down. I could not say to my mother, I already ate because I never knew when she might try to kill me again. In the back of my mind, I never knew. And I didn't know why she had tried to kill me until I was 34 years old. And her brother told me. When she tried to kill me because I was her second daughter instead of her first son, she had been raised to believe that she could prove herself a worthy woman only as the mother of her son. Mm. I was the child who was supposed to be a son because she already had a daughter. Ah. My mother 
was the second daughter who was supposed to be a son. My grandparents had a baby boy first who died in infancy. Then my Aunt Terry was born, and then my mother, who is supposed to be the son. I don't know if my grandmother tried to kill my mother, but she threatened my grandfather with a butcher knife. And he took it seriously enough that he left the family. So my mother was never nurtured by my grandmother. She did not know how to nurture any of her six children. And she damaged all of us. And she damaged my father as well. So I started compulsively overeating at age 14. Kept overeating. It, It came in waves. There were periods that were just truly horrible. And then there were periods when I did better. And then when I was, well, my... The other tragedies, I had three tra- long-term tragedies. The second one was a boy pulled my school my chair out from under me in school when I was 12 years old. I landed hard on my tailbone, and medical professionals misdiagnosed that injury for 33 years. Mm. Any listener who has a child, please tell your child to never pull your chair out from under anyone. Some people are instantly paralyzed, so I'm lucky I can walk. But I have lived with out-of-place pelvis, hips, and vertebra for decades because of the misdiagnoses. My pelvis and my hips are mostly staying in place now. My vertebra are learning to stay in place. But I'm 72, so 60 years of -of out-of-place bones. My husband died when our daughter was a baby, was eight months old. So I was a single mother with invisible pain because nobody could see it and nobody believed it, including my family. Mm -hmm. And I faced a lot of stereotypes because of being a single mother who said, I'm in pain. Mm -hmm. So I break that down a little bit, right? Because I think, I mean, what you're telling us are such, I mean, we started with the trauma of what you experienced with your mother. And then really you kind of talked about what I perceive as like generational trauma, just because of the in a family structure mm-hmm. um, and like what a family is supposed to look like. Right. Societal expectations. Right. And, yeah. yeah. And, and then I think dealing with an injury and then another loss, I mean, that is just compounding trauma. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. And we find a lot, Paula, that um, in the people that we work with, they do develop eating disorders after experiencing a trauma. And it sounds like you've experienced many of them throughout the course of your life, because for a lot of people, this sounds kind of weird to say, but an eating disorder can be a coping skill, right? It was a coping skill. It was a coping skill for me. Right. Absolutely. So the tricky thing though, with eating disorders as something that starts off as a coping skill, because it quote unquote helps, it's not sustainable to use food way to cope with our feelings so what was once kind of helping us is now the thing that's hurting us um and it turns into it's called a maladaptive coping skill um and it sounds like maybe you started to experience that um when you were younger and also you said something really important paula of how it kind of like came through in waves of where Mm -hmm. it felt more manageable and at times where it didn't feel as manageable and i think that's a really common experience for the people that we work with. And that's why it's hard for them to reach out and get help because there are these moments where it's like, you know, not as bad. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but that doesn't mean that someone isn't deserving of of help or needing help. But I think that's where it just creates a tricky dynamic in, in seeking and accepting help because it's not always like a rock bottom that someone has to be in in order to, to get help. Did you feel that you recognize that you were, you know, binging and compulsively eating or do you feel like it took a while? Oh, no, I knew it. You did? I knew it. Food called to me and I answered. Mm-hmm. Did it feel, um, just because there's some of our readers, I think from an eating disorder perspective, readers, I said, um, some of our audience, most of our audience, I think thinks of eating disorders only as like restriction or, um, you know, the bulimia, like with purging. I just think there's still like such an inaccurate description of like what an eating disorder is. And you know, even when we talk about like compulsive eating and binge eating, I really feel that the majority of the world doesn't really understand what that is. You know, um, can you, I know it may be uncomfortable, but can you explain like what it feels like? Is it impulsive? Um, is it something that's planned, um, to kind of help our audience understand, um, what it's, what it entails? For me, it was never planned. It was always compulsive. It mm-hmm. must have happened. As I look back now, it must have happened when I didn't feel safe. I had the back pain and I had the loss of my husband and all the problems that caused. But the compulsive overeating was a coping method for my murder memories and for feeling safe. I actually didn't feel safe in the world till I was 70 years old and I'm 72. So it was a coping method for feeling safe. And I, my memory, my first memory in life was of me being in a crib when my father came into the room with a bottle. And that memory meant that I was going to live. My mother had shortly before left the room after trying to murder me. I didn't know what that memory meant until I was 42 years old and could say, mom did try to kill me. But my father came into the room and I knew I was going to live. So at periods in my life, I looked to men, to relationships with men to feel safe. So I had inappropriate relationships with men in an attempt to feel safe from my mother killing me. Mm -hmm. And so possibly I was more compulsive when I didn't have a man in my life who made me feel safe. And it's also interesting, your memory, you said your father was feeding you a bottle, you know, mm-hmm. so I wonder too, on some level, how like eating and food meant safety, because it, it could be, I never made that connection before, but it could be. Yeah, yeah. And did you, how did you feel, you know, after you would have an experience of, you know, that compulsive eating, did you feel like there was a combination of like, of physical, um, uncomfortable? Oh, feeling? there were times, there were times there were, when I was young, I would see friends of mine get drunk and how oh, they'd be the next day. And I'd tell myself, oh, I'm never going to make myself a hangover. Well, I gave myself food hangovers. I'd stuff myself one day and wake up the next day feeling horrible and it was a food hangover because I had eaten too much I had eaten unhealthy food mm-hmm. so 
I was just doing what they did in a different way. I, I feel like that's a really good explanation. And I know um, it's uncomfortable to talk about, but I think something that I find a lot when I'm working, you know, with individuals is, you know, they will come in and sometimes say, you know, and then I had a binge, right? Mm -hmm. And it's never that I ever want to invalidate anybody or that, you know, but I really try to get that data or that information to understand, like, what is that binge like? And I completely understand that it's very uncomfortable to talk about, but there is definitely a difference, I would say, between a um, experiencing binge and binge-like behaviors versus like eating a little bit more than you'd like to and using that word binge mm -hmm. as a judgment. <clears throat> would you agree? Well, yes, I yes. Compulsive overeating is you have to eat and you have to eat as much as you can possibly get into your stomach in the worst moments. Sometimes half as much food would solve the problem. But there were times when I stuffed myself until I couldn't take any more. And then I'd have the food hangover the next day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think now we live in a society that often judges, um, to speak to Amy, what you were talking about, I think people often judge like even snacking and then they tend to relate that to a binge. But I mean, Paula, definitely based off of what you're saying to me, there's a stark contrast between oh, stark you know, contrast, right? You know, the guilt that someone may feel after snacking versus like a true and diagnostic binge. Right. Um, you know, so I really appreciate you helping give people a different a, a perception of like, no, it, it causes a lot of distress and physical discomfort mm -hmm. and emotional discomfort. It's emotional not discomfort. Yes. I always hated the overeating, I was lucky enough, despite my childhood, I was lucky enough to learn to say positive things to myself and listen for positive words I could trust. So I wouldn't tell myself I was horrible, but I would tell myself that was terrible. To, it's terrible to overeat. Uh, but I didn't know how to stop. Back then, I did not know how to stop. In fact, I never knew how to stop. It just happened. The stopping yeah. just happened. So tell us a little bit about that. I know first when you were really motivated, you wanted to stop. I think that you did. I think you share with me that you tried Overeaters Anonymous. I, I started an Overeaters Anonymous group in the area where I live because I thought that would help. I wanted to stop. I thought that would help. I got the group set up, got the books, got a room, got people there, started looking through the books and the book said, this is an incurable disease you'll have for the rest of your life. And I thought, no, <laughs> this is not incurable. This is situational. I had to figure out what the situation is. So I created the group and then I left it. I don't yep. know how long it lasted after I created it, but it wasn't the answer. Well, and I feel like that really kind of shows your intuitiveness and your how you were able to kind of pull and use your rational mind, right? So- right. It's the fact that you were able to say like, no, I do feel like this is situational. A lot of times we have people in our office who feel like hopeless and they don't understand what's going on. But then when they talk through just that um, point of knowledge could be that that kind of clue that gives you a little bit more internal motivation. Do you know what I mean? Um, so the fact that you really felt strongly like this is situational and I understand when it's occurring could have been that 
you know, a little fire that ignited you to kind of pursue something else. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't directly pursue something else. It was yes. an indirect end to my eating disorder. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I had pain in my spine and had difficulty sitting and standing normally, it was difficult to earn money. Plus, my husband died when our daughter was eight months old, and I wasn't going to go out even if I could have. I wouldn't have gone out to work 40 hours a week and leave my daughter alone with someone else. She'd already lost her father. I wasn't going to have her lose me for 40 hours a week. So I stayed home with her and was on food stamps and rental assistance and Medicaid. And I started, well, I heard all kinds of things about single mothers in the, in the, Late, uh, my daughter was born in 78. So late 70s, early 80s, most single mothers were not Hollywood actresses having a baby and presenting a somewhat positive role model. They They were considered to be, I don't know the statistics, but they were considered to be loose women and careless women and who knows what. So I, there were all these stereotypes and I started writing letters to the editor because there were complaints in the paper. I started writing letters to the editor about poverty and food stamps. I wrote about another of other topics as well. This was in the 80s when Reagan was president and his strategic defense initiative, his Star Wars defense was a big topic, and I wrote an eight, a six-part series in the newspaper about it. So I wrote about other things, but I wrote about poverty frequently. I wrote letters frequently for about nine years, and I gave information. I talked about how people getting food stamps are out of food before the end of the month, and I got a lot of responses there was one Friday, I didn't tell you this one, Amy, when we talked before, but there was one Friday. I, my daughter had gone to her grandparents' house for the weekend, so I went out to a bar where my friends and I would go to dance. And one of my friends said, all the papers in the newspaper today are about you. <laughs> so it's mm-hmm. so such an impact. <laughs> and so some of them were horrible. One woman accused me of hiding behind my daughter and looking for free handouts. Another woman wrote, she's a widow with a baby. (laughs) We need to support widows with babies. And I started getting positive responses from all over. I, a woman in my village who I hadn't met, stopped me on the street one day and asked me if I was Paula Kramer and I said I was, and she said that I was brave to write the letters and thank me. And another man, I once wrote about, oh, Joseph McCarthy, the senator from Wisconsin, where I live, who was behind the Red Scare in the 50s Mm -hmm. and rooting out communists in Hollywood. And I had written a letter about him, and someone had written an admiring letter about him. So I wrote a letter saying that he harmed the lives of hundreds of Americans. A man called me up 
and said thank you because he had known one of those hundreds of Americans who had been harmed by Joseph McCarthy. Another person wrote me a letter. As I told Amy, my favorite instance was I was in, I started college when I was 35. I didn't go when I was 18 because my mother would have chosen where I went and what I took. But the, actually, my letters got me to college because. Wow. Yeah, I didn't tell you that. I grew up in a family that stereotyped me. My mother stereotyped me. She taught everyone in our family both sides, to ignore what I said and discount what I did in case I ever talked about anything like her killing me. And so my family stereotyped me as when we became adults, my siblings treated me like trust, like a trespasser in their lives. Hmm. There was no room in their lives for me. That Sometimes at Christmas time we would get together, but mostly I was not part of their lives. And then <clears throat> I was stereotyped as a single mother. No, so I couldn't succeed in my family. I had difficulty believing I could succeed in society because of all these stereotypes about me. And I thought about going to college after my husband died, but I thought I could, the American society wouldn't let me succeed in college. Mm -hmm. One day, still make me cry. One day I had a letter, I had a letter in the paper about poverty. A woman called and asked, are you the Paula Kramer in the paper? Having no idea what to expect, I said, yes. The first thing she said was, is there anything I can do to help? Wow. And after all of that, yes, for about 14 months, this family incorporated my daughter and me into their lives. They, the teenage daughter took care of my daughter once. My daughter was under four at this time took care of my daughter when I had an appointment. They invited us to their house for tea. I had the woman to my house for tea. My, my older sister once told me she had no space for me for Christmas, but this family took me on the spur of the moment for Christmas. Mm -hmm. So because of that family, I decided I could go to college and succeed. Yeah. So two degrees, and I'm here talking to you. So that was one thing that came out of my letters. The other thing is that, well, the, and so I got to college, I tutored writing. I was taking a class to tutor writing and I walked into the classroom where the tutors were gathering for class. I introduced myself to another non-trad student who I hadn't met yet. I said my name and she said, you're Paula Kramer, she's Paula Kramer, you're Paula Kramer. And so, <laughs> I got all this wonderful positivity after decades of negativity. And about, when was this? This was, I started writing in the 80s. I started college in 85. So probably, probably around 1985, 1986, I noticed that I was feeling fewer compulsions to eat and cool. smaller compulsions to eat. The more I wrote those letters, the more the compulsion to eat faded away. It just faded away. Mm -hmm. It was by 1989, I, the compulsion was mostly gone. I had one minor instance, incident in 1991, but it just faded away. And I later learned 
about disc behavior styles and Springer guiding values. I have a website where you could learn about these. And I realized that when I wrote those letters, I was satisfying a behavior style need and a guiding value need. I'm a a high I influence. I want to influence people and my letters satisfied that need to influence people. My guiding value, my second guiding value passion, we have two guiding values, is knowledge. So, well, my first guy, there, there's two guiding values, helping and knowledge. So I wanted to help people with knowledge and I was doing my best to influence people to ignore stereotypes and see people. And by satisfying my disc behavior style need and my guiding values, the compulsion to eat faded away. And I was eating because I didn't know what to do with my memories. I didn't know how to put those pieces of my memories together to understand what they meant. So I ended my compulsive overeating for the most part in 1989. I did not say to myself, my mother tried to kill me until 1992. So the compulsion ended before I knew what to do with my memories. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I just get the sense, Paula, that throughout your experiences and making yourself vulnerable to be open and honest and advocate for people. I mean, it really just seems like you came into your own throughout all of those years, despite all the adversity and, you know, life knocking you down and you having to get yourself back up. Um, I can absolutely see why, like in finding a passion and something that brought you value and meaning like those behaviors kind of fell to the wayside because you were feeling fulfilled mm-hmm. um, behaviorally and emotionally. Yeah. And I think that it talks to, you know, it's a unique story in the fact that, you know, there wasn't like traditional therapy and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. But one of the psychiatrists that we work with, uh, Dr. Dumitrachi, um, she's local in Frederick. And one of the things that I really appreciate from her is she has always said, you know, treatment and therapy is different for everybody. It can be, you know, a walk outside through the trail and, or it can be, you know, through music. Um, it can be through an experience. Um, but then taking that experience in and being able to get to a place like where you can work through the emotions and the thoughts. So I think the interesting thing to me is, and of course I'm not a therapist, but is I listened to your story and to me, you were proactive in like a problem solving situation, Mm -hmm. meaning, um, you, like, I loved how you said, like, I valued knowledge and helping people through knowledge. I mean, I can relate to that. I think like mm-hmm. Kim's known me for a long time. Like I, I hate it when there's misinformation out there and I feel like I have to do something about it. I can't complain about it if I'm not willing to do something about it. And when I do, you know, reach out or, or, or speak or something like that, there is an internal positive feeling you know, I'm not just complaining on the wayside and not doing anything about it. And you do get something out of it because there might be one person in that audience that you make eye contact with and you know that, you know, they know where you're coming from and they're going to be able to change their life and so on. And I can, I can see that that would mend, you know, a part of your, you know, brain that felt like maybe you couldn't have relationships because of all the broken relationships you had. So it kind of like Mm -hmm. got you to a, you know, a place where you were in that growth mindset 
you know, oh, I can have these positive relationships and people can appreciate me. That just seems like it was so such a great yeah. experience. It was, it was. And, and I also felt good because I knew my letters did create change, at least with one group of people, because one of my friends was in a babysitting co-op in my years of writing letters. She went to a co-op meeting one day. One of the women in the meeting asked, does anyone here know Paula Kramer? Uh-huh. <laughs> and my friend said, yes, I know Paula. <laughs> the woman asked, is Paula fat? And does she sit in front of the television set all day eating potato chips? Because uh-huh. I was writing about food stamps. So my friend said, everyone's straight in that room. So she broke that stereotype about poor people needing food to a group of people who might then have gone on and said, well, maybe they're not fat and sitting in front of the television set all day eating potato chips. Mm-hmm. Well, and that just shows like, again, like I think a deep rooted problem that we have in our society in America is this stereotype and this assumption, you know, what an ignorant thing to say about somebody who has food scarcity and needs right. food stamps, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there's just so, so much out there, you know, which is probably why we do this podcast, right? Like, <laughs> so people can kind of understand, yeah. you know, evidence. Because, you know, these right. are our letters. Right. These are our letters, right? Right. right. These are your letters, your right. form. Right. 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 Um, I mean, I'm just amazed at your resilience. Mm-hmm. I think that that is it's so important for me to kind of highlight your story because I think, not I think, I know that the majority of people that come to us, whether it's like through an email, you know, or through a phone call or to our office, they are in a place of hopelessness. Mm -hmm. You know, by the time that they've come to us, they've already gone to multiple people who don't have, don't understand what an eating disorder is or what the experience is like or don't even ask the right questions, right? So, you know, they go to a provider who it's just clear that they do not have any insight and that closes people off, Mm -hmm. right? And so by the time they come to us, they feel so deep rooted in this maladaptive behavior that they really don't think that anybody can help them. And Mm -hmm. I get it. I think I I get it. Well, they have to start out by helping themselves. Uh, Somehow as a child, well, my father loved me. He loved me, and I knew he loved me, but because of my mother's emotional abuse for him, he became an alcoholic. He was a quiet alcoholic. He would go off to work, come home and drink three quarts of beer at night to keep his feelings buried, but he couldn't keep them buried, and he would erupt in rages that could last hours or days, and in one of those rages, he broke my sister's arm. So I knew he loved me, but he terrified me. Mm-hmm. But because I knew he loved me, I think because of his love, I was able to say positive things to myself. And I developed soft skill strategies as a child to create as many positive relationships I could outside of my family. And when I was 11 years old, I attracted my first unimagined success. Soft skill, when you use soft skills to take what I call positive control in small spaces, you position yourself to attract unimagined success. And at age 11, I said something to the principal, the nun in our all-girl, I mean, Catholic elementary school. Whatever I said she liked, and she started inviting me to come to her office for conversations. I would go to the principal's office thrilled to be able to sit there and talk to her. I remember sitting across from her desk. We had wonderful conversations. I had no memory of what we talked about, 
but I remember laughing a lot. And those conversations made me at age 11 feel equal to any person in any room. When I first heard about the imposter syndrome, I had to look it up because I have never felt like an imposter anywhere. So they start with themselves. They need to say positive things to themselves. Listen to positive words they can trust, which means someone says something positive to them and then does not ask them for anything in return. And say positive words others can trust. And that starts everything. That's what started everything for me, saying positive things to myself and then saying positive things to other people. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate that, Paula, because I think from my perspective as a therapist, I try to be that person that like gives them that positive, um, those positive things, right? Because a lot of clients that I work with, their parents don't talk to them um, and don't give them praise, right? Or there might be some manipulation behind them saying something nice. Um, so I really appreciate what you're saying because I think I really try to like model that. And I, when I work with people and my mindset is if I'm that one positive person for someone and I'm able to impact them in that way, like then it's all worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause look at what a difference it made in your life. And, um, So I I just really appreciate that point. Yeah. And I think also just to highlight that Paula was able to take that, you know, so maybe it was that positivity was modeled from that, the nun, but you were also to take, able to take that on and practice it because I Mm -hmm. think that that's where everything breaks down, right? Like, so a lot of times people come to our office and they, you know, I'm going to my nutrition appointment and I'm going to my therapy appointment And everything sounds wonderful in our office. And then life happens as soon as you hit that parking lot, right? So if you can't take that and then practice it, which is, sounds like that's what you did, Paula, like that constant, you know, positivity, gratitude is like what we talk about a lot. It's not sustainable. You're not going to be able to teach your brain to automatically start to do that and hear it and believe it. So I feel like that's so important and it just proves like a lot of things that we have, we see, you know, the eating disorders thrive in isolation, invalidation, mm-hmm. right? Um, fear and, you know, an inability to have that growth mindset. Mm-hmm. That's where it's a thriving ground for an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And as you were talking, Amy, I was thinking about how right? The, that like negative self-talk is really like the eating disorder, right? Mm-hmm. So I may be trying to talk positively to them and, um, but it's hard to fight against like that internal monologue that is trying to like validate someone through manipulating their body or manipulating their food intake. Um, because I think people easily can confuse, and I don't mean this as a judgment, I mean this as like a normalization they can confuse the ED's positive talk um, when really it's like, it's not, it is manipulative and controlling, but they latch onto that of, see, I did something like it's praising me and uh, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's yeah, confusing. It's, yeah. Confusing. Hence why you had this experience for so long, right? Like, I think that is another very important thing for, for people to understand, like there were waves, right? And so anybody who's listening here, who feels like I've had good years 
and bad years, I just feel like it's really important to normalize that. Like it's situational based on the trauma and the stress um, that you have. But I do think, I do wonder if people who are listening can be empowered to understand, oh, I can play a part and a role in my healing. I okay. think that mm-hmm. to me is what I love about your story. Mm-hmm. The the star of your of your um, resiliency and recovery is you. It's me. It's me. Mm-hmm. Right. Starting with small, this first small spaces where I took positive control were my ears and my mouth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love it. I do too. I love it. Well, Paula, how can people follow you if they want to know more about your story and, you know, your, your books and your uh, productions? I have, well, in my latest book, the latest cooperative book, I actually tell a story where I told a woman who was in distress. I actually didn't know how much distress she was in when we talked first. And, and she came into my life through someone else, but I told her to say one positive thing to herself every day, and she turned that into a non-governmental organization that the government of Kenya approved. She's mm-hmm. in Kenya. And so I gave her one piece of homework to say something positive every day, and she changed Kenya. She's changing Kenya. <laughs> wow. Can we yes, go that's... to the website to find more information about that? This is... Well, yes, that's speakingfromtriumph.com is my main website where I, I have a long page about my tragedies and triumphs. There is a books page, Books and More, where that book will be. I don't have copies of it yet. It just came out in February. I don't have copies, but I am going to put it up when I get it so, so that no one orders it. Well, I guess they could pre-order. That's, the book <laughs> is empowered, Women Empowered Through Purpose and Passion. And those that's the Speaking from Triumph website. And I have talked to at least a dozen other people who remember one or both of their parents trying to kill them. At least approximately one child dies every day through intentional actions of their parents. I think 10 to 20 survive attempted murder every day. On that website is a page called Murder Secret Families for, for anybody who wants to understand my process of coming to it and to read the research on baby memories. And I have excerpts from my journal showing how I came to be able to say mom did try to kill me through all kinds of really difficult times. Then I was smilesparksuccess.com where they can find all kinds of free information about this behavior styles and Springer guiding values and recognize their own behavior styles and guiding values and learn to say, this is what I need because this is who I am. Then I have a website called softskillsstrategycourses.com where I offer soft skill training to for using with other people. I teach people to use soft skills with others, but I have 14 blog posts currently with resources for people to use soft skill power strategies with themselves in a variety of situations so that they 
come to understand that they deserve every success they attract. Because when you use soft skill power strategies with other people, you position yourself to attract unimagined success. And I've attracted all kinds of them. I went from silence voice to international voice. Yeah, but it's uh, my 72nd birthday. I became an audience favorite on an international podcast because I was able to use my soft skill power strategies with the host. Well, I That's think wonderful. this is wonderful. And we're going to, for everybody who's listening, we're going to link this to our, um, all of our socials so that people can read more about your story, look at your blogs and really, and maybe use some of these soft skills and pursue it and see, you know, what they think about it. Um, I want to thank you for telling your story. I know it's a, a vulnerable story, but I think it's very, very important and I think keep, keep kicking butt. You're doing awesome. Um, I'm doing my best. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Paula. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, so good. Much. I, I hope somebody learns to say something positive to themselves every day now Yeah. in their ears and their mouths. They yeah. control in those small spaces and then it expands. That's a good goal. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you everyone for joining us for our favorite hour of the day. We hope you enjoyed our latest podcast from Don't Be Foodish and we can't wait for you to hear our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please help us by rating and reviewing. This allows others who have similar interests to find us. We'd also love for you to follow us and when you do that, you will be getting the episodes before they are broadcasted on our social media. If you have something that you are really interested in hearing or you'd like us to talk about, please feel free to give us a call at 301-580-0008. We will listen to your messages and hopefully be able to integrate that subject into one of our podcasts this year. Thanks so much, and we'll talk with you soon.